this morning, of course, not this preacher, but uh, from Luke 2, there are uh, people who are reading uh, from Luke 2 in their, in their quiet time with their families. And, and the reason is because that story tells us everything that was happening around all the events that happened and circled the birth of Jesus uh, Christ. You're driving through your neighborhoods and you're reminded of his birth by seeing nativity scene after nativity scene. You see really the, uh, the, the wise men bearing gifts. You see uh, the shepherds watching their flocks by night. You see uh, Joseph and Mary looking down in pride uh, at their little sweet baby plastic Jesus, right? And so we're reminded of Christ no matter where we look. You know, it's interesting to me that uh, even unbelievers, those who do not follow Jesus Christ, those who know nothing of salvation or God, of God's grace and his saving and saving faith, even all of those who have nothing to do with that seem to be receptive of this idea of the birth of Christ during this particular time. There are some who are completely opposed and antagonistic to Christianity, hate the idea of the birth of Jesus. However, for the most part, most people, most unbelievers seem to be okay with Jesus as a baby. Where it gets uncomfortable for many is not when he's a baby, but Jesus as an adult. That's where they find offense, the message of Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus dying for sin. But may I suggest this this morning, that if we are to have forgiveness of sins, if we are to have eternal life, if we are going to be made right in a relationship with God, then we have to go beyond the manger in our understanding of who Jesus Christ is. We can't just accept the coming of a baby. We have to accept the death, burial, and resurrection of a Savior. All have to come to this point, not only you and I, but even the mother of Jesus Christ herself, Mary. Jesus knew this. So Jesus took a, an event that occurred at a wedding, on a wedding day, marking Jesus' very first miracle. He took that particular event to help Mary to go beyond seeing Jesus as merely just her little baby boy. Moms, you understand that, right? You'll say, they'll always be my little baby boy. Even when they're 250 pounds, they'll still be mama's baby boy. But Jesus understood that if Mary was going to be made right with God, if she was going to have eternal life, and she was going to have forgiveness of sin, that she herself had to see him more and it, than that baby. She had to move beyond the manger. Some of you this morning are going to have to move beyond the manger. There's no doubt in my mind that you're okay. You may even have a plastic Jesus on your front lawn, but still not truly be a follower of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is I want to use the same event that Jesus used for his mom to move her beyond that manger to hopefully and prayerfully move you beyond it as well this morning. If we are going to move beyond the manger in our understanding of who Jesus is, then three things must occur. First of all, to move beyond the manger, we must come to Jesus humbly. We must come to Jesus humbly. Verse 1 really sets, uh, really sets the, the, the setting for our story. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding feast at Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his uh, disciples. And so, here's the setting. It takes place in a small, really for the most part, insignificant town called Cana. It's uh, really located about eight to nine miles out of Nazareth. That was the hometown of Jesus. That's where he grew up. 
Um, and so it's not really a huge significant town except for what seems to be happening at, at, at this particular time, at this particular place. Jesus is there with his mom and with his newly appointed disciples, and they are rejoicing in this wedding, a man and a woman coming together, uh, being married before God. And what's interesting is, of course, we understand that marriages are a big deal for us today, uh, but they were even a bigger deal in the first century for the Jewish people. This was a day like uh, unlike any other, uh, especially for those who were poor. Uh, they would come together and they would be treated like a king and like a queen. The, everything that they wanted was given to them as was possible for the family and for their friends. Their word was law for their families and friends to follow out. And they would celebrate for a full week leading up to this particular wedding day. Everything was excellent. It just didn't get any better for an individual than that particular day. Well, there was a problem at this particular wedding, and we find that out in the next verse. The scriptures tell us that when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, meaning Jesus, said that they have no wine. They have no wine. Now, this is a little bit hard for us to understand, perhaps in our context. We don't understand what Mary's role is. We don't know if she's just a guest or if she had a greater role, but she understands that there is there's trouble in paradise at this point. See, wine was a huge part of the daily life for uh, the Jewish people in the first century. The water was not very good, so they would drink wine instead to be able to remain healthy. But it was a huge deal when it came to times of celebration. And even in the Old Testament, the wine often pictured joy. If you had wine, you had joy. So for wine to run out in a wedding meant that there was no joy in the wedding. And so this would have been greatly offensive. It would have been greatly offensive uh, to, 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 the wed to the bride and her family. They would have viewed the bridegroom and, and of course, uh, the, the, the groom himself as really a failed oversight and really being insensitive. And so this was a huge deal. So Mary wants to do something about it. She doesn't know what to do, so she goes to her son, Jesus, to help. And she says, look, there is no wine, indicating, hey, look, I'm your mom. Hey, do something about this. There are some who have conjectured and thought, well, maybe she thinks that Jesus is going to perform a miracle here. But there's really no evidence of that because according to the word of God, Jesus hasn't performed a miracle up to this point. This is the very first miracle that he's performed. She's thinking probably more of terms of him going to the store or wherever it is and trying to find a way to be able to uh, really kind of bring peace and joy into this unity of this man and this woman. Now, this happens, so there is trouble. And then uh, it, very interestingly, Jesus responds in a very strange way at this point. In verse uh, 4, it says, and it says, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, I don't know what kind of mother you had, but I once um, spoke to my mom like this when I was a little boy. Once. Just once, because then she introduced me to Irish Spring as a mouthwash, and I never did it again. So that was it for me. And so what is Jesus doing speaking to his mother this way? Say, calling her woman. Well, in order to understand what he's doing, we have to understand what he's not doing. And what he is not doing is he's not being disrespectful to his mom. His mom has raised him. She's fed him. She's changed his diapers. She's, you know, cured his boo-boos. She's kissed his boo-boos. She's kissed him on the head, on the lips. She, they have, a, no doubt, a close relationship uh, with each other. But at the same time, um, 
at this particular point, he's not being endearing to his mother. That's very clear. He, in essence, is just saying, your concern, woman, is not mine. Now, what Jesus is doing is he is distancing himself from his mom. He's pushing her away. One commentator said this. He says that he is, he is strong-arming his mother is what he's ultimately doing. Not just strong-arming, but more specifically, stiff-arming her, keeping her at a distance. Well, why is he doing this? Well, you have to understand this part of Jesus' ministry. He had just begun his public ministry, and from this point on, he's now beelining to the cross. Soon he is going to be giving his life as a ransom for many. He's going to die for sinners so that anybody who repents and believes and places their faith in him will be saved and their sins will be forgiven to them by God because he had paid the full sin debt for them. This is what he is gearing to. And he understands that if his mom is going to be born again, if his mom is going to take part in this salvation, then she needs to go beyond seeing him as her little boy. And she herself needs to see him as a savior. Listen to me. Everybody needs a savior. Everybody has been born in sin and willfully sin. We are all guilty before God, worthy of judgment. We need to be saved from our sins. Everyone needs to be saved, even the mother of the savior. So when he stiff arms her, he doesn't do it because he, he, he doesn't love her. He does it as an act of love for her. And so in response to him, she doesn't get upset. Instead, she says something very enlightening. She says, do whatever he tells you. Now, here's the rest of the story. The rest of the story is going to be Jesus going to immediately begin to work on this whole wine deal. All right? He's going to immediately do it, which leads me to this. I look at that, and I begin to ask myself this question. Well, if Jesus was going to do exactly what it is that she requested him to be able to do, then what is the deal with all the woman, what does this have to do with me thing? Why even throw that in there? Why is he trying to push her away if he was going to do it to begin with? We kind of have to understand what is going on here. When she first came to Jesus to make her request, she was coming making it based on her own position, her position of authority. She came as a family member to Jesus, as her mother. She was coming as a mother, believing that she had an inside track to get Jesus to give her what it was that she ultimately wanted to be able to receive. Well, when Jesus stiff arms her and, and tells her, calls her woman, she has to take a step back and reevaluate her relationship with this Jesus of not only who she is, but more importantly, of who Jesus is. And at this point, she comes back, and then what she does is now she does, comes not as a position of mother lording over him, but now she comes humbly before him, and she says to the servants, do whatever it is that you would want what he tells you to do. Do you see the faith here? Do you see the humility? No longer do this. She just says, do whatever it is that is right, that you see is right to be able to do. There's a shift. Coming to Jesus, having access to him through position, as opposed to coming and making access to him in Jesus hearing her through her humility. And so what we do is we see that this is always the way that somebody is to approach. In essence, what Jesus is teaching is this. He teaches that access to him is not found in one's position or family tree or pedigree. Access to Jesus always comes through us humbling ourselves before him in light of who he is. 
This is true through the rest of the teaching of Scripture. In Luke 11, a, a woman calls out, Jesus is teaching, and a woman calls out from the crowd, blessed is the womb that bore you in the breast at which you nursed. She's saying, man, the woman who had you, Jesus, must be incredibly blessed. She must have an incredibly high position. This is how Jesus responds. He says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He says, those who are truly blessed, those who truly have access to me, are not those who have a high position, but those who humble themselves and humble themselves before me. And how do we humble ourselves? By submitting ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ and to obey and to live out his commands. He says it again in Matthew chapter 12 and verses 46 through 50. Jesus again is teaching, and as he's teaching, somebody shouts out to him. A gentleman tells him, hey, say, hey, listen, let me interrupt you for a second. Your mother and your brothers are outside. They want to see you is what they want to do. And, and, and so Jesus, at that particular point, he turns to them. He says, who is my mother and my brothers? And then pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. He says, <coughs> excuse me, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Do you see the consistent deal? When a person comes to Jesus, even the mother Mary cannot come to him and say, this is my position. I want you to do what I want you to do for me. He says, if you're going to come to me, if you're going to see Jesus more than just a baby, if you're going to see him for who he truly is, then you must come humbly before God. That's how we have access to God. Now, for some in here, that's bad news. Because there are some of you in here, and, and, and I'm just, uh, this is just the heart of man. Some people pride themselves in who they are. Some of you are owners of businesses. Some of you may have a high education or your PhD or your master's or whatever it is. Some of you have accomplished a great deal in your life. You are a person even in our community that is greatly respected. And the truth of the matter is, is you have used your position. You have used your position in this life for your advantage. It is it has worked for you. Uh, you have been able to use it. People know who you are, and because they know who you are, you've used that to access to be able to get what it is that you ultimately want. But the truth of the matter is that's now working against you and can be a stumbling block for you to come to Christ. Because let me say this, and let me say it respectively, and please understand it in the tone. Jesus doesn't care what position you hold. He doesn't care who you are or what it is that you've accomplished in your life. He says, if you're coming to me, you're not coming to me demanding something for me because of your position. He says, my mother did that, and I stiff-armed her. What is he going to do for you? The only way to be able to come to Jesus Christ is to be able to come humbly, is to be able to come as a sinner, is to come to recognize that Jesus Christ is your only hope, that Jesus Christ is the Savior. Now, I said it's bad news for some, but it's good news for others. And it's good news for others is because I know that there's people here who sat there and said, man, I don't have any position. A matter of, life, a matter of fact, you are probably the poster child for low self-esteem. You sit there and you're like, man, I don't have any important parents. I, I've never accomplished anything great in my life. I, I, I've never, I've never <clears throat> owned a business. I don't have two nickels to be able to rub together. Nobody even notices me when I walk into a room. Well, I want to let you know you are at a great advantage. Because all you have to do is come exactly the way that you are before God, recognizing that you are nothing apart from God, Christ and recognizing that he is everything. And here's the thing, he won't turn you away. He'll forgive you, he'll receive you, and you'll have full access to Christ by humbling yourself. How do we, if we're going to look beyond the manger and see Jesus for who he is, we have to come humbly. 
There's a second thing we have to do, and that is this, to move beyond the manger. We must see our need for cleansing. So Jesus says something very interesting. Mary comes and says, listen, there is no wine. We're out of wine. Jesus responds in a weird way. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? But then he also responds in another very strange way. Notice the second part of his response. He says, my hour has not come. Now, what in the world does that have to do with anything, right? Hey, Jesus, we need more wine. Well, my hour has not come. Jesus, we're talking two different things, and that was Jesus' point. He is talking two different things. What does he mean that my hour has not yet come? Well, when you begin to study the book of John, you find out that this phrase is used time and time again. It's used several times. Every time that it is used, it is used to explain Jesus' death upon the cross. And so let me give you kind of a couple of examples of that. Excuse me. I'm struggling with a cold like many of you, but anyway. John 7, 30, this is what it says. It says, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not come. You see that? He says, people didn't arrest him and crucify him because his hour, it wasn't the time for him to die yet. And then in John chapter 8 and verse 20, he says, those words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come come. So Jesus is just saying, she says, hey, we need more wine. He goes, hey, it's not my time to die yet. What in the world is going on here? Here's what's happening. Jesus is using this physical event, this physical need and desire for wine to demonstrate a spiritual truth. They want and feel like they need wine. He's telling them there's something greater. There's a wine that you need greater than the wine that you're thinking about. Your need is the wine of my blood. The blood in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, often is demonstrated and symbolized through, through what? Wine. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, talking about the Lord's Supper, he says, drink this wine, or if you're Baptist, drink this juice, right, in remembrance of me. You guys got that, right? And so it's a picture of his blood. He was picturing that. Here's the same exact way. He's saying, you're, you think your need is for wine. I'm telling you, your greatest need is not the wine, but what the wine symbolizes, and that is my blood. And he says, why is the need for that? Is because the only thing that they could cleanse them of their sin was the blood of Jesus Christ. You say, well, Mike, are we sure about this interpretation? I think so. Because notice what happens next. The Bible says in verse six, now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish acts of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Now, so there's six stones, big, big, huge, tremendous 20, 30 gallon type pitcher stones that he, they're all filled up with water. Now, if you go to Israel today, I thought this, found this interesting. Uh, actually perceived this myself, which is amazing because I'm not very perceptive. But we were, we were there at this particular location. If you go to Israel, here's what they do. You go to wherever things were supposed to happen according to tradition, and somebody stuck a church on it. Okay, that's what they did. So you can't really see where it really was. They're like, yeah, it's somewhere around here they stuck a church on it. Same thing with this particular miracle. So you'll go, and there's a church, and from the road, there's a picture of Jesus, and, um, and, and there's six clay pots, and it's supposed to represent the miracle here. But did you notice in the text of Scripture, they didn't say clay pots, they said stone pots. So the person who painted it really got it wrong, and it's a significant mistake. You say, why? Well, the reason that they painted it clay pots is because clay pots is what you would drink water out of. You don't want to carry a stone pot over to the well, fill it up, and try to bring it and wear it on your head back. You want to use something lighter. They would use 
clay pots for drinking out of. So then the question is, why does Jesus not say, hey, get the clay pots. Surely there were some clay pots. Get some clay pots and let's fill that up. Instead, he uses the stone pots. What was the stone pots for? Well, John tells us what they were for. It was for cleansing. According to the Levitical law, in order to be clean before God, and before they ate, they would have to wash their hands and wash their feet and wash their faces and wash their utensils. And these pots were used for that. So in essence, Jesus is taking the water. He's going to turn it into wine. You, you know the story. He's going to turn it into wine, perform this miracle, and then they're going to drink out of the bathtub. That's what they're going to do, okay? You don't normally do that in the willingness to gross people out, okay, unless you're trying to make a point. What is his point? His point is ultimately going to be this. You may know that you are sinners, but what you need to know is that you cannot cleanse yourself. You cannot clean yourself up. You can go all through your little ritual deals and do everything you can to try to be good, and that's what the Jewish people were doing. They were trying to follow all these ceremonial laws, and Jesus says those ceremonial laws of you cleansing yourself is going away. The only way for you truly to be cleansed is through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that can cleanse you. Now, when we first got into this building, um, you know, we wanted it to be all nice and spick and span. We wanted to be clean. It was dirty. All the construction dust around. You guys know that if you've ever built a home. And so what we did was we hired our cleaning crew to come in and bring in the big machinery. You know what I'm talking about. No more just mopping with a bucket, but come in with a big scrubber and scrubbing everything up. And so we wanted things just to be nice and pristine and clean and get all the grout clean and all those things. And so they came in and, <coughs> excuse me, it of course was more money that we had to pay, but we felt like we needed to do it. And so we, I came in the next morning just expecting something spick and span, and as I came in, everything looked clean, clean but the smell was obnoxious. I, it, it was terrible. It smelled like old rags or what I like to call um, um, Outback Steakhouse. Have you ever gone in there and smelled Outback Steakhouse? Sorry if you're from there. Just go in there. Every time I go in there, it smells like a wet rag. I don't know why that sounds, maybe you're like, oh, no, you've ruined it. It's all right. Sorry about that. Uh, my wife knows what we're talking about. We go in and we're like, oh, man, what, you know, dirty water, something. So we couldn't figure it out. So I, t I call him up and say, man, you clean, but it stinks in this joint. And he goes, listen, sir, I'm sorry. We cleaned it. If we come out again, we're going to have to charge you again. I'm like, no, it stinks. The supervisor came and he goes, man, it stinks in here. I go, I told you, it stinks in here. And he goes, man, it smells like dirty water. I told you, it smells like dirty water in here. And I go, it looks clean, but it's not clean. And, I, and he goes, well, I know what he did. It was a new guy that we had doing it, and he forgot to change the water. He was cleaning with dirty water. And, uh, and I'm like, well, that kind of explains it, doesn't it? And so no matter how much you scrape, no matter how much you clean, you can't get something clean with dirty water. Well, Jesus' point is going to be this for you and for me this morning. There are some of you who truly do. You, you didn't have to come here this morning to know that you have failed in all things, that you were a sinner against God. You know that. Some of you needed to be reminded. Some of you needed to be humbled. Some of you need to still be humbled in your heart. Some of you know that you have fallen short of the glory of God, but here's the mistake that you're making this morning. You're just trying to clean it up yourself. You think somehow, some way, you know you don't have a position, but what you're trying to do is you're trying to be a good enough dad and a good enough husband and a good enough father. And you're depending on all those things that somehow because of your goodness that God is going to accept you because you are trying to do your very best. And that's the lie of the devil. Here's why it doesn't work. You were born a sinner. I was born a sinner. We all were. Which means that we were completely and fully saturated with sin. 
That means even the things that we try to do good, the Bible says, is saturated with sin. The Bible says the very best that we have is like dirty, filthy, leprous rags that stench in the nostrils of God. Why? Because everything we do is covered with dirty water. It's covered with our sin, our attempts to do what is right before God. And what he says, he says, you could keep using it over and over, but it's like cleaning with dirty water. Everything you do is going to be dirty and it's going to smell. He goes, what you need to do, be do, what you need to be done is to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, the only thing that can wash you is white as snow, is pure as snow. It's the only thing that can ultimately happen. And so what the Lord says this morning to you and I is this, is look, if we're going to look at Jesus and see him beyond the manger, we have to recognize that we are sinners and come humbly. But we also have to recognize, and just as important, is there's nothing that we can do to take away our sin. But there's a third thing we must do to see Jesus beyond the manger, to move beyond the manger. And that is that you must fully be dependent upon Jesus. You must be fully dependent upon Jesus Christ. Notice the scriptures. <clears throat> Jesus um, sends for basically the head waiter. He comes the master of the feast, he comes and he tastes of it. Then, in, then we pick up in verse 9, he says, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now, now it had become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. So this master of the feast is the head waiter. He's the one that takes care of everything. So he tastes this wine out of the bathtub, and he's like, wow, this is Good stuff. This is good stuff. And uh, I wouldn't know how you do that. Look at it. I smell it. Whatever it is. I don't know. <clears throat> it all smells disgusting to me. And so uh, here's what happens. So they come over and they, they get it and, and they go, this is the good stuff. Now, he goes, you have made a huge mistake, bridegroom. He goes, you have served the bad wine first. You should have served the good wine first and then the bad. He goes, you serve the good wine so that when they're really tanked, You'd slip in the cheap stuff, the box stuff, right? Is that right? The box stuff, right? And you, and, and you slip that in. And then when you slip the box stuff in, nobody knows any different. They don't know. They're, they're so smashed that they don't even know if it's going to taste any good or not. And he goes, and you've done just the opposite. And so he's thinking to himself, you've made me look bad, you look bad. And here's the deal. He was right. He was right on one sense. He was wrong in the other. He was right that the bridegroom was at fault, he was wrong in the sense that he thought that he had served the, the poor wine first. No, he didn't. He, he gave his very best. He gave his very best. But where he was right is it was his problem. He's the one who fell short. He's the one that made the mistake at the wedding. He's the one who blew it. He was the bridegroom. But guess what? Jesus was the ultimate bridegroom. Where this man failed... Jesus was able to come and to accomplish what this man was unable to accomplish. Do you see that? Where he failed, Jesus succeeded. That's a picture of Jesus as the ultimate bridegroom. Listen to me. You and I have all failed. We failed. We have failed to our wives. We have failed to our children. We have failed to our coworkers. We have failed ultimately to God. We have failed. But Jesus has succeeded in every way that we have failed. He has been tempted in all ways, but yet he sinned not. You've lied, he did not. You've lusted, he did not. He was righteous in every single way. And because of that, he was able to complete on the cross what you and I were not able to complete. That was to appease the very wrath of God through his death for you. You say, so what does that mean for you? 
It means that if you will repent from your sin and depend fully upon what he did for you by your, in your heart and with your life, the Bible says that you will be saved. You will be born again. You can't depend on your goodness and your position. You can't depend on you being a good dad because you're not nearly as good as you think that you are. But Jesus was everything you were not to depend fully and completely on him. This message was very simple this morning. I didn't try to be unique. I didn't try to be creative. I didn't try to be any of those things. The whole point for this morning is because I know that some of you have come by the invitation of your family members. You've come, and, and really, you're not even really all that active on a day-to-day -day basis in this church or in any other church. But you've come, maybe by the invitation of someone else, or just because you think around the Christmas season that you need to be at church. And that's awesome. We are so glad that you were here, and we are so glad that you have been invited, and by the invitation that you have come. But there's another invitation. And that invitation is for you to repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ. And here's the difficulty of us here in, 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 in North Florida and in Nassau County. As I'm speaking to you, many of you are sitting there and you are thinking, I'm good, thanks. But let me tell you something, you're not good. You're not okay with Jesus. Yes, you have a mental assent to the truth of everything that I just said. But there's never been any true repentance in your heart. There's never been, there's no demonstration in your life that you're a true believer in Jesus Christ. There's no hunger for God. There's no desire to be a part of his church. There's no desire to be able to pursue him and to be able to live for him. And what I'm saying to you is you're not all right unless he changes you from the inside out. If he changes you and gives you a new heart, then you know that you are in the faith. If you have a desire to pursue him and to know him and to tell people about him, all evidence, again, that you are born again. You don't do these things to be saved. It's evidence that you have been saved. Here, here's, the, here's the saddest thing that I could think about this, this week. The greatest thing that I could think about is that this is about Jesus coming to the world and people being saved. The saddest thing that I could think about is that there are people, even sitting here this morning, who have spent more time, energy, and exerted more energy thinking about what they wanted for Christmas and what they would buy for others for Christmas than they do about their eternity. They spend more serious time thinking about who they need to buy for and what they need to buy and managing their budget than they do any time of thinking about their forgiveness of sins, where they stand with God, and for eternity. So my call to you, my invitation to you is to take this time. You may say, I don't have time to be able to do these things. Right now is that time that I'm extending to you. This is my gift to you because of the gift that Jesus Christ has ultimately given through his shed blood that made it possible for you to be saved. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to please stand this morning and close your eyes and bow your heads once you're standing. And I'm going to pray. In just a minute, I'm going to be down here. And I would love to be able to pray with you. I would love, we've got counselors here that would love to be able to talk with you. And to be able to share more with you about how you can come to faith in Jesus Christ. If, if it's not clear, if it's clear to you, you can repent and believe in Jesus Christ right where you are. You don't need a preacher. You have one advocate between God and us, and that's Jesus Christ. But if you'll sit and say, God, man, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I've blown it. 
I know that I'm nobody except apart from Christ. Jesus, I need you to forgive me. God, I failed you. But I know that you completed what I could not. You've lived a perfect life. You died on the cross for me. Jesus, save my soul. And through faith, God will save you. He will cleanse you. He will restore you. He will give you a new heart. He will give you a new mind. Jesus, I pray in the name of Jesus that people will come to faith. For all those who understand, they will be saved right now. For all those who are struggling, I pray that they will respond, that we can pray and we can lead them and counsel them. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have this time of response, do business with God. If you need help or prayer, come now. All right? As we sing. Come ye sinners, poor and This morning as our ushers come forth and this is now our time and our chance to respond back to God um, of how he's blessed us with our tithes and our offerings. Um, But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, um, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your son um, who it was in the form of a baby that he came. Um, But Father, help us to look forward to the cross. And Lord, I just um, thank you for how you bless us so much and help us to respond back to you um, with a heart of joy and a heart of gladness. In Jesus' name, amen.